Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Business of Medicine series on ENT in a Nutshell. I'm your host, Ashlyn Asiri, and today we're joined by Professor George Wu to discuss negotiation basics. Professor Wu, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Before we begin, I'd like to introduce our guest. Professor Wu is the John P. and Lillian A. Gould Professor of Behavioral Science at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. He teaches negotiations at the university, and his main body of work focuses on the psychology intertwined with negotiations. Professor Wu, thank you again for joining us. Let's jump right in. Great. Can you go over some of the reasons why anyone would enter into a negotiation in the first place? Well, we negotiate all the time. I think that uh, the sort of obvious negotiations that people think about are salary negotiations or buying a house or uh, buying a car. Uh, Those are the sort of classic negotiations that we all face. Uh, We don't do them very often. Uh, Hopefully, we're not uh, negotiating salaries uh, all the time. That probably means you're uh, switching jobs too often. Uh, But, you know, people buy one, two, three properties over their lifetime. Uh, People buy cars, whether they're used or new. But I think the other thing is that uh, we negotiate in organizations all the time. Actually, we negotiate in our households all the time. And one way of thinking of negotiation is that any time that you and somebody else and possibly more than just one person have to collectively reach an agreement when uh, you and that person or those people have a disagreement or have differing objectives uh, and priorities and so forth, that's negotiation. So it sounds like from a practical standpoint, these are all skills that we'll have to use on a daily basis. Are there any specific situations where a negotiation doesn't necessarily pay off? Well, I mean, it depends on what uh, you call negotiation. I mean, I think take a salary negotiation. I mean, I think those are situations where at least uh, the situation is calling for you to negotiate or not. I always tell people is that they, they need to understand the reasons why you negotiate. And presumably, one of the primary reasons that you negotiate is because you think that you're going to do uh, better by negotiating than uh, you would otherwise. And better here means a combination of things. It means obviously getting maybe money or other uh, aspects of your job that are preferable than what's in the letter that you got from uh, your employer. Uh, But it also includes how you're thought about by the organization or the person that you're negotiating. In other words, what your reputation is. And and sometimes, of course, uh, you're not going to be very successful in negotiating. One of the things that, you know, I teach MBA students and many of the jobs, maybe probably well over half the jobs that our MBA students get are are really not negotiable. And, And the reason they're not negotiable is that a bank or a consulting firm or Amazon, they are giving essentially identical offers to a large slew of MBAs. Some of the MBAs are from University of Chicago, but they're also from Harvard and Penn and UCLA and so on. Uh, And to the extent that they essentially give you even a dollar more, uh, they're going to feel compelled to give everybody else more money. So in those situations, it's extremely unlikely that you will be successful in negotiating. And to the extent that you're, let's just say, ignorant and you don't know that, Uh, and you insist that you are better and that you should be paid more, that's not going to look very good in terms of how they think about you. So that's a situation where uh, you're not going to get an outcome that you like, and you're likely to be seen uh, worse off than uh, you would be before. 
That actually brings up uh, an important point, I think, is how does a negotiation or how can a negotiation impact the relationship between the parties involved? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think one thing that people always ask is when they should negotiate. And a worry, of course, is that to the extent that you negotiate, you're going to you're going to be seen uh, as being pushy and so on. And and certainly there are ways in which you can negotiate in which this is going to diminish your reputation and make you look bad. Uh, but there's also ways you can negotiate. You can actually look look good. And, you know, I, I, I use this example that's in Sheryl uh, Sandberg's book. And the story, and I might not get this completely right, is that it goes something like this. So a senior executive at Google, Facebook comes up to her, asks her if she's interested in this uh, position, you know, Facebook is a relatively new company there. She interviews, gets an offer. Uh, the offer is, it, you know, is, is good. Um, she's uh, tempted to take this job. Uh, and uh, she shows this, uh, her offer to her brother-in-law and her brother-in-law says, Cheryl, are you crazy? No self-respecting man would ever take the first offer. And it sort of hits hits over the head. And obviously, she's written a lot about things like gender and so on. Um, and one of the things she does is, as a response is she thinks about this and she realizes, of course, that no self-respecting person should ever take the first offer. They they need her. She has a lot to offer. Uh, and and what she says is, is, is kind of masterful. She says, we are negotiating. Understand if you are successful in luring me to take this job. I will be doing lots of negotiations on your behalf and always on your behalf. But for now, I am negotiating for myself. And one of the things that I like about that line is that there are lots of jobs in which negotiation is really one of the critical capabilities, the critical things that people do in those jobs. And, and one thing that in order to kind of telegraph the fact that you are doing something maybe uncomfortable uh, you are creating conflict with somebody else. You're pushing and asking and honestly, honestly, making them worse off. Uh, you're actually not necessarily making them worse off because what they are doing is they are seeing a part of you that they really need to be uh, shining on the job. So you are basically showing that you are actually an effective negotiator who, if you are successful in, or in terms of negotiating an offer, in other words, joining this firm, uh, that's something that that the firm will will take advantage of and 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 be happy very happy that you have those capabilities. The other aspect of sort of relationship is that part of it is that it's less about whether you ask and uh, try to get things for yourself and so on, which are the obviously what you're trying to do, but it's it's in how you do it. And so to the extent that, People listen in negotiation. Uh, people are respectful and uh, professional. Those are the kinds of things that, you know, you need to excel in, in in all parts of kind of organizational life. And to the extent that that you do those things, but clearly advocate for yourself, that's very, very different than advocating for yourself in a pushy, unprofessional way. So to the extent that it's not necessarily about what you're trying to get, but what people react to more is the process in which you actually engage. And if you gauge in a way that's disrespectful, then of course you will be seen as a disrespectful person. 
if you engage in a way in which you're clear-minded, you're prepared, but professional and respectful, then you're seen as just an asset to the organization. Well, that kind of leads right into the next thought that came up while you were discussing that is, how do you develop reasonable goals for your negotiation that create a a desirable job or outcome uh, for yourself, but also are not too pushy or seen as unreasonable to the other party? Uh, That's a great question. So let let me take it in a couple of steps. When you're negotiating something like, let's just say, an acquisition of a company uh, or negotiating a job, there's one thing that is sort of inescapable, which is money. Uh, So in the case of a job negotiation, that's salary. In the case of acquiring a company, it's price. And so obviously thinking about that as an objective and presumably trying to maximize or minimize it, depending on which side you are, that's sort of obvious. I think what's less obvious are lots of other kinds of things that you can negotiate as well. And actually, those oftentimes are compatible uh, with, uh, with the organization. And honestly, in some situations, they are things that the organization has more leeway on. Let me give you a couple of examples. Is that you know, when my students ask me about negotiating uh, jobs and things like that, I all start with, okay, so tell me what you want. And said, well, I want more money. I knew, I know you want more money. Uh, now tell me what you want. Uh, I want more money. Well, and I keep on, I repeat, and I, I finally will say is that I know you want more money, but maybe there are other aspects of the job that you can successfully negotiate that might be beneficial or maybe more beneficial than even money. And so, and one example that I give is that one of the things is that companies may not be very flexible in terms of money. And one of the reasons they're not flexible, as we talked about before, is because if they give you more money, they they have to give everybody else more money. But they may be flexible in terms of, you know, what assignments you get. You may get as a first assignment, an A plus assignment that's super highly visible. It's going to be with senior members of the organization. It's going to be really interesting. So that highly visible project may be more beneficial for you, for your career, for lots of reasons, promotion, or even just money than money directly. I use that as an example, but as a way of sort of provoking people to think about other aspects of their job that would make them happy, that would make them successful and so on. And the second thing to to do is once you kind of know what are the kinds of things that let's just say would make you happier or better off or whatever, I think the idea is you need to come up with reasonable goals, right? So like, it'd be great if I got a million dollars for my next job, that ain't going to happen. You're not going to get a million dollars. You might not even get a, a third of that or a quarter of that or a 10th of that or whatever. One of the things that you have to do is you do your research and you know, fortunately, there are lots of resources online. They're not always perfect. Uh, there are resources that universities have. There are resources that are online that give uh, people at least an idea of what reasonable salary ranges are. So, you know, this is a lot different than, say, a generation ago when when people were negotiating like this, that they kind of have to guess. And it wouldn't be so obvious whether maybe they could get 100,000, maybe they could get 150, maybe they could get 200. It wasn't so clear. Uh, now, I think at least that range in which the salaries might, you might be able to get a particular salary are, 
are sort of much more uh, narrow, and therefore I think people can set appropriate goals. I think the other thing that you'd like to do is to understand whether objectives that you have are ones that are, let's just say, in conflict with what your organization wants, or maybe sometimes sometimes they're actually compatible. So for example, you know, if you think about money, is that if you give me an extra dollar, then that costs you a dollar. Th- those are things that are in conflict. Uh, but it's not necessarily in conflict to put me, if I'm really somebody that you think is special, uh, that's unique, that's better than other people that you're trying to recruit. I'm somebody that you can't reward me with money because of all the other reasons that we talked about. But what you can do is you can put me on that really special project. And in fact, that's good for me because I get the visibility and that's good for you because uh, if I'm the person that you really want, then you're going to obviously be able to take advantage of my skills and my abilities and so on. Uh, and obviously help me rise more quickly in the organization. And if, you know, if I'm anointed in that way, then that's obviously going to be good for the organization as well as for uh, me. Yeah. And so to tie that back to, you know, what a physician would encounter, those alternatives outside of salary could be things like time for research or academic time, research support, any kind of access to funding or collaboration with other departments and that kind of thing. Yeah. For academics, I think one of the things is that, you know, if you think about, say, salary, Uh, you know, that's going to be something that if you get more money, it's going to make your university or your research center or whatever poorer and so on. But to the extent that one thing that, as you say, is compatible is that you are being hired as a researcher to be more productive, to do better work, to do more work, uh, to make the work quicker, whatever, all those kinds of things that lead to faster research productivity, better research productivity, more research productivity. And to the extent that you have reasonable requests for research money that you can basically indicate that that's going to make you a better researcher, a faster researcher, a higher quality researcher. Those are things that honestly are compatible with the university or research center's objectives as well as yours. And, and you know, one of the ways that actually, I think it, it's interesting because all universities say that they're committed to doing things like, you know, having, you know, research is really important and stuff like that. And I think that sometimes it's a way of seeing whether they're really willing to put their money where their mouth is. So if to the extent that the institution says, you know, we can't just can't do that, you know, we we want you to be successful as a researcher, but, you know, we're we're not going to give you any more money to do that. Whereas another organization says, oh, well, you know what, that's that sounds really good. We're going to find a way to fund that. That's a reasonable amount of money. That seems like that will help you out a lot and so on. And you see that one university responds very, very differently than the other one. Uh, That might be something that really speaks to the fact that that second university is really, in some ways, committed to research in a way that the first university isn't. Right. And I think when you're setting goals for negotiation and doing your research, part of that is trying to understand the interests of the other party and your own interests, of course. Can you go into how you would go about understanding their interests and differentiating that with the positions that different parties may take? It's hard in a lot of situations because what's inevitably true is that you start 
negotiating. You're greener, you're younger, you're less experienced. You don't really know the full set of perspectives or considerations and so on that other uh, people are facing. Uh, some of those disappear as you become more mature and you have experience and you've talked to administrators or the kinds of people who are uh, ultimately going to decide on, on on what to give you and what not to give you. So I think one of the things is that it is important to try to take the perspective of the administrator. So, you know, in the private sector, those might be executives who are running the organization. Uh, they might be HR directors for a university or a medical center or something like that. They may be uh, you know, the hospital directors, the hospital administration, the HR, they might, they might be deans and so on. And one of the things is that it's hard to actually know what their set of objectives are. So, you know, I think one of the things is that, uh, for example, it's not obvious to people who are negotiating for the first time that if they give you more money, they, they're going to feel compelled to give other people more money. And one of the reasons why is that most organizations are trying to be fair. They're trying to recruit a lot of people. And so that's a consideration that is sort of obvious when somebody says it, but it's not something that people necessarily think about. So stepping back, I think one of the things is that you're trying to take the perspective of somebody else, but also you, you want to recognize that it's hard to do that because you haven't been in that job. And therefore there's going to be lots of aspects of this that you're, you're not going to know about. Fortunately for, you know, a lot of negotiations, there's lots of wise advice. There's also lots of bad advice, but there's lots of wide advice on the internet. And some of that just basically in some ways is a narrative that talks about the perspective of certain parties. And I think those things are good to read about partly is to just kind of get a different perspective, but you also want to recognize that uh, you want, you don't want to take any particular thing in any sing single narrative as being, let's just say overly you know, the gospel about how, how any certain person is going to act. They're just sort of things that are meant to kind of prompt you or sort of help the way that you think. The other thing is, you know, to talk to other people about things that you could negotiate and, and what are going to be sticking points and what are going to be things that are going to be relatively easy. And to the extent that we know people who have negotiated similar jobs at different institutions, uh, we oftentimes have people who are trying to recruit us. They would like us to be joined as a colleague. Uh, they're on our side. They know how their administrators and their school or their organization think. And, you know, what they can do is they can talk you through some of the ways that administrator thinks and what the sticking points are to how to pitch arguments so that uh, they're going to seem more compatible or more, more irresistible or whatever. So let's say we've done our research and we've kind of understood what our interests are and some set some goals for the negotiation. As we actually move into the negotiation itself, I thought it'd be useful to go over some terminology. Would you mind walking us through some of the concepts and terminology involved in negotiations? Sure. There are two kinds of negotiations. Uh, there are actually more than two kinds, but two basic kinds of negotiation. They're oftentimes called distributive negotiation and integrative negotiation. Distributive negotiation is what you think about when you negotiate a car, right? So I want a low price. You want a high price. If you do well, you get me to pay more money. If I do well, 
uh, I pay less, uh, what I gain, you lose. So those are what you can think of as zero-sum games. So those are ones where there is value that's distributed between the two of us. In other negotiations, uh, you can think of these as integrative, and this is when people talk about win-win. So in these kinds of negotiations, there are outcomes which are better for both sides than other outcomes. There's win-win aspects of that negotiation, which sometimes we call them value creation, uh, but there's also win-lose aspects to this. And so if I had a whiteboard, I would draw like a little triangle. And the idea is that triangle, if you had that triangle where, you know, the origin of that triangle was zero value to me and zero value to you, uh, and then to the Northeast are outcomes which are better for both sides than zero, zero. So for example, maybe we can both get $10, but they're also in that triangle might be uh, something that looks like 20, zero and something that looks like zero, 20. So 10, 10, zero, 20 and 20, zero are all outcomes that create as much value as can be created. But in one situation, I get all the value. In other words, I claim all the value that was created in another one. Uh, you get all the value. And in a third one, we split it. And obviously, there are lots more aspects to that. A few more bits of terminology. And one of the things that's especially useful, particularly for distributive negotiation, is uh, what we call the zone of possible agreement. And the idea there is you walk into a negotiation like buying a car, and hopefully uh, you have some maximum price that you're willing to pay. And I'll talk a little bit about how you come up with a maximum price, but let's just say uh, you're negotiating for a car and uh, you've decided you're not willing to pay more than 25000 for that. Second thing is that they also have a bottom line. And that might be something like 23000 And the idea is that any price between 23 and 25 is better for both the car dealer and me than uh, not making a deal. Now, a couple of things about that is what determines the 25 and the 23. And that's something that we call a BATNA. A BATNA is a best alternative to negotiated agreement. What that means is that one way to think about, say, 25,000 is 25,000 is the most you'd be willing to pay, or put differently, is you would be basically indifferent between paying 25,000 or doing whatever else, whatever the best alternative to buying this car is. It might be another car at a different price. It might be continuing to commute on public transportation in the event that people take public transportation in the future. It might be borrowing your friend's or parent's car. It might be using Uber. It might be continuing with your somewhat dilapidated car or your car that doesn't have quite the features that you would like and so on until another day. And so the idea is that there are always things that will happen if you don't negotiate. And what you want to do is understand what's going to happen if you don't negotiate. And your job as a negotiator is to do better than you would do in the absence of negotiation. And so that's what we call, again, a BATNA, best alternative to negotiate agreement. And your bottom line, or what sometimes we call reservation price, is essentially the number that makes you more or less indifferent between going and pursuing your BATNA, let's just say continuing with your slightly crummy, pretty embarrassing 2005 Camry or buying a new Camry at some amount of money. 
So it sounds like ideally you'd be able to increase the value where both parties do better during that negotiation, but clearly that's not always going to be the case. But what are some useful tactics that you can use during a negotiation to increase the pie or, you know, kind of guide the conversation towards the direction that you desire? Well, I mean, I think part of it is discovering where interests are compatible or where there are things that will create value. Sometimes the things that create value, when we talk in negotiation, there's a very simple recipe, which is that there might be lots of issues that we're negotiating. You know, you would like all the issues. You're not going to get all the issues, but there are some priorities here. So for example, you're going to a restaurant, there are lots of considerations, how expensive the restaurant is, how novel or sort of basic the restaurant is, what the ambiance is, how far the commute is and things like that. And there are things that you're going to care about a lot and that your spouse or significant other or friend is going to care about less. So it might be something where I really care a lot about like whether it's kind of a new hip novel restaurant And my wife doesn't care so much about that, uh, but she cares more about the fact that it's someplace that is uh, not too far away. I don't really care whether we have to drive a lot or whatever. And it may be that what we end up doing is we end up finding a restaurant that kind of some splits the difference between those two things. Or sometimes it's something where what we can do is find something in which I get the things that I primarily want, which is this kind of new and novel restaurant, but there's also a restaurant close by and so on for her. So I think one of the things that suggests is that we're not necessarily going to discover that unless essentially people talk and they listen and that, you know, we hear each other out. Now with people like spouses or Uh, significant others or people that you work with in in companies a lot or have a long relationship is sometimes you can guess these kinds of things just because you've worked with them. You also might guess wrong. And I think one of the things that I think good negotiators do is they, they try to guess where people are at. They try to take people's perspective, so to speak. But sometimes what they do is they just ask and they say, you know, what are you looking for? And, you know, ideally the conversation is one where You tell me what you're looking for. I tell you what I'm looking for. And we essentially figure things out. Now, the problem here is that sometimes in a lot of situations, people feel like they're going to give things away if they're overly disclosive, right? So certainly you can think of lots of business situations, which say like, what I really need is a high quality product, right? And if you sort of tattoo that on your forehead, that quality is the most important thing and that you're willing to pay anything for that, then you're going to get it, but you're going to have to pay a lot. So sometimes what happens is that what keeps people from communicating and being truthful is they feel like if they advertise or they disclose too much of their priorities, uh, then what's going to happen is the other side is going to take advantage of that and charge them a lot of money. So one of the things is in situations where you have a pretty good relationship with somebody, you can, you can afford to be a little bit more truthful right away in situations where, uh, you're not really sure whether you understand somebody, you're really not sure whether you can fully trust them. Then you have to be a little bit more cautious about what information you share, but also how you think about the information that they share. 
So in addition to how we disclose information and our interests throughout the conversation, can you describe what anchoring is and how that may influence where the conversation goes? Sure. You know, one of the things here is that we know from a lot of research, first offers in negotiation are really effective. In other words, that you make a first offer, I make a first offer. And within a range, within a reasonable range, uh, the more extreme my first offer is, the better deal I get. And one of the reasons why is it, it's pretty simple, is that if we're negotiating for a car and I start at 22000 and you start at twenty six, or I start at 24 and you start at 26, if I start at 22 and you start at 26, then we're going to end up right in the middle, something like 24. Uh, if I start at 24 and you start at 26, we're going to end up at 25. So in that particular situation, the more extreme that I am, the, the better a deal will get because basically the final deal is going to end up in the middle. Now, there is one other way to think about this, which I think is more psychological, which is if I know that you need to get 23000 in order to sell me this car, what I probably want to do is I want to start a little bit south of 23000 or maybe quite a bit south. And what I want to do is I might want to start at something like 22 or 22.5 or 22.4. And here's the feeling that you should have if I do that, which is the feeling should be that, oh my God, you know, oh, you should have a sinking feeling. And the sinking feeling is that you're thinking that you'll be really lucky to make a deal. And what I've done is I've given you the impression falsely in this particular case, uh, that I'm not willing to pay very much money for this car. And therefore, it's pretty unlikely that we're going to make a deal. Right. So that's what anchoring is. What it does is it massively changes or anchors your perception of what the other side's reservation price is, largely through the first offer. And a different way you can say that is that if I start, let's just say my reservation price or my bottom line is 25000 and I say, 24.5. And I say 24.5. And I, I say 24.5 because I know that I'm willing to pay 25,000. Guess what? I'm going to pay. I'm going to pay north of 24.5. I'm going to pay something like 24.8. Uh, in which case, uh, I walked away with almost no value in making that negotiation. In that particular case, what the other side learned uh, here is that, first of all, they're going to make a deal because we could make a deal already. Uh, but that my bottom line here in the negotiation is something that's really quite attractive to them. I've noticed that, you know, when we talk about these examples, it's a lot easier for us to discuss these, you know, situations when we know the interests and the BATNAs and the reservation prices for both parties. Obviously, when you're going into a negotiation in reality, you don't have that exact number most of the time, I would say almost never, you would have that exact information about the opposing party's interests or their reservation price. And I think that's why doing your homework is so important. But there's always a certain range of error in your research. How do you compensate for that and how extreme you are with your anchoring or your proposals during a negotiation, that range of uncertainty? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, first of all, you know, one of the things that we do, and this is an advertisement for taking a negotiation class, one thing that we do when people 
learn negotiation, business school or law school or lots of other places that they teach negotiation, is that people go through negotiation simulations that are kind of stylized versions of real negotiations. And then the thing that they do after the negotiation is done is something that is unique. And in particular, what they do is they see their results, they see the results of other people so they can kind of grade themselves, so to speak. But they also see what the truth is. Uh, They see that I was willing to pay 25. They see that you were willing to pay 23. They see other constraints that you have. They learn what's true or not true in terms of what people say. And I think that's really useful because, you know, one of the things that we don't know when we negotiate is really if we had tried something different, would we have been effective if we'd been more aggressive? Maybe I would have been too aggressive. Maybe I would have alienated you. Maybe you would have walked away right away. Or maybe, you know, I was too modest. And so, you know, one of the things is that short of some extreme mistakes, one of the things I always tell people in negotiation is that if you're negotiating with somebody and they make a disastrous first offer, not disastrous for you, but disastrous for for them, let's imagine they're something that you would be willing to pay 100000 for. Uh, and they say, well, how about 20 bucks? mostly what you're thinking is like, are you crazy? Like what? Like I'm willing to pay a hundred thousand for that and what 20 bucks. And so you don't say that. Right. And one of the things that you're going to be tempted to do is when they say 20 bucks to sort of jump on that offer and not let it go. Right. And if you immediately jump on an offer and not let it go, then you're going to see right away that that was like criminally low. So one of the things I say is that even if somebody in this kind of contrived example uh, makes a first offer that's truly, truly bad, you should still say that you can't take it. And you should say, can't really pay that. How about 10 bucks? Here's the beauty of that. You're probably going to get it for less, but by actually having a second or maybe a third round of bargaining, you actually make them feel better. Right. So to the extent that you jump on their offer and don't let it go, you know, even a knucklehead will conclude that they made a really bad first offer. But if there is a give and take and we end up at 14 bucks, they don't know that 14 bucks is still terrible. They think that uh, because we negotiated two or three or four rounds, they did a good job. So let's say we've overcome the psychology of a negotiation and both parties ultimately come to an agreement, wherever that may be. I do have a question about what happens after negotiation. Is the deal over at that point? Is there any room for change? How do you follow up to ensure follow through? How does that work from an etiquette standpoint? It's hard because, you know, there are lots of things that will change. And so, you know, one of the things is that some of my students uh, join startups and when they join startups, here's the problem is that, uh, you know, startup doesn't have very, very much money. And so they can only give you so much. And the idea is that they're going to oftentimes promise you if things go well, come next year, we'll offer you more. Now, the problem there is they can promise you, but they're not going to have enough specificity to write down what you might think of as a contract. And one reason that, you know, it's a startup, lots of things could happen. Uh, They don't want to overly tie themselves down, but what they want to do is to kind of at least indicate their intent. 
uh, we've done a lot of construction on our uh, renovation, construction, various kinds of things. And the people who, who have done this, and sometimes I don't wish this upon anybody, but it's really almost impossible thing to negotiate, right? And one of the reasons is that, uh, you know, you get a bid to do a bathroom or a kitchen or to do a gut rehab and stuff like that. And the problem is that's just sort of a, like a skeleton for starting a negotiation in some ways. Uh, because, you know, if they open up the walls, they're just nasty rot or there's some foundation problems or whatever, something that they couldn't have anticipated, then that's going to necessarily be something that, that they're going to have to negotiate. Because, you know, if, if you have a bid to do a, a bathroom for $15,000 and then they open up the thing and there's massive amounts of plumbing problems, well, you know what, you could, you could have them do what your bathroom is, but you don't want that because that bathroom is not going to work very long with those plumbing problems. On the other hand, you haven't really decided. And, and actually you're not in a very good situation here because uh, you don't have really have very much leverage at this particular point because the walls are open. Uh, you don't have a bathroom, all those kinds of things. And so those are super, super hard situations. And I, I think one thing is that you actually started talking about relationships at the very beginning. And, you know, I think that ultimately these things are going to rely on trust uh, and relationships between people. Uh, and to the extent that you have a good relationship and to the extent that people have good reputations and so on, those are be situations where reasonable people can work things out. And to the extent that people are untrustworthy or let's just say opportunistic, uh, those are crummy situations. So, you know, some of it is recognizing that you are going to get into these situations in the future where ultimately, depending on, you know, they're going to have to trust you or you're going to have to trust them. You're going to have to be a person of your word, whether or not that's something that you want to be, or I'm going to need you to be a person of your word. And I guess I would say is that part of it is to understand and have as many of those conversations up upfront, partly to recognize that, you know, to work through those situations, at least hypothetically, to understand whether you're on the same page. Now, having conversations that are hypothetical is very, very different than having conversations that are based on what really happened. We saw a presidential, I guess it was a debate, you know, people were asked to say about election integrity and whether they were going to honor that and whatever. And there are lots of things like that. If you, if you think about the differences between promising to do something in the future and actually following through on them, they're, they're really quite different. Now, that's obviously very public, but take that particular example and think of lots of situations where it really is very, very different from promising that you're not going to do something in the future and actually being in that situation. Or, you know, maybe, maybe with the Supreme Court, you see this even more with the Republicans, they said, if we're in the situation with the Supreme Court and late in the presidency, we won't do this. But in this situation, now that it's happened, is a very, very different situation. So again, I think that not to get political about that, I think part of it is that that's kind of predictable, which is that it's easy to say things that you're not going to follow through on. In the same vein, and kind of along what you're 
and moving towards is how do ethics play into negotiations? You know, there are a lot of assumptions being made. There's a role for keeping some of your interests to yourself until it's beneficial to, you know, advertise that. How far do you take a bluff and where do you draw the line of ethics uh, in a negotiation? That's a very complicated question. Let me just take a couple of, of whacks at that. One is recognize that negotiation is fundamentally something in which there will be a temptation to mislead, deceive, lie. You know, if, for example, you know, in a negotiation, in a situation where I'm negotiating salary and it's not verifiable that I have another offer. If I tell you that uh, I have another offer for 125000 and I don't, then that helps my leverage relative to telling the truth, which is like, I've been looking for a job for the last three years, and this is the first job that I've gotten, and I celebrate it, and I'll basically take anything that you offer me. Now, you can see, of course, that those are, are really different. And, you know, there's a lot of space in between saying the truth, which is that you'll take anything that you'll get and telling a lie that you have an offer. But you can see that negotiation is fundamentally something in which you can change people's perception on the other side of what you're willing to accept or pay or whatever, then you're going to do well. And by far, the easiest lever to use is to lie. Now, that doesn't mean you should use it, but it says two things. One is that you have to recognize that negotiation is going to involve a temptation to uh, lie or deceive or whatever, and that you have to decide yourself what you're comfortable with doing. And I think that is your own sort of ethics and philosophy question. But also recognize that same temptation is going to exist on the other side, and that other people may draw the line in a different place. And that part of it is that there is a little bit of a kind of buyer beware that's kind of built into the negotiation, which is that in negotiation, we don't accept what people say foolishly. There's always a little bit of caution in terms of how we interpret that, especially when we don't have a relationship with somebody and so on. So I think that's part of it. Ultimately, I'm pragmatic about ethics in negotiation. I, th you know, I think that people have to decide on their own ethics, but I think that people also just you know, have to recognize that that's part of the game. And there's a book by woman called Sisla Bach called Lying. And one of the things that she has in that book is she, she carves out something about negotiation. And she says that partly is that it's understood that negotiation is different than other things, in which part of it is the expectation is that there's a little bit of misleading and that jockeying around of, of saying things that are not quite truthful. That's just part of the game of negotiation. That's very interesting. So for our listeners who are interested in learning more, maybe practicing uh, negotiations or preparing for an upcoming negotiation, whether it be for a job or, or any other situation, do you have any resources that you recommend or any tips for our listeners? Yeah. I mean, there are lots of great books. Getting to Yes is a book that was written in the early 80s. It's by far the best-selling negotiation book ever. Uh, it's still one of the best-selling business books. It's just a really good book for, you know, understanding some of the basics of negotiation. I like a book called Bargaining for Advantage, which is written by Richard Shell, who's a professor at Wharton. It has a very balanced, you know, take. And I think some of it is that they're just, they're actually 
a lot of good negotiation books. And part of it is, you know, I think that when you read a negotiation book, recognize that, especially negotiation books that are written by people who have negotiate. Um, so, you know, there are lots of these kind of books by sports agents and there are ones by FBI hostage negotiators. There are ones by diplomats and all kinds of things. Understand that there are sharing what was successful for them that may may or may not be what works with you. And so when I suggest that people read these books, there's a little bit of a, a kind of caveat, which is that read them for inspiration. But, you know, again, don't take any particular advice religious. What you're looking for things to help you guide your behavior that will make you better. Wonderful. Thank you for those recommendations. Well, Professor Wu, I think that wraps up our discussion. That was very comprehensive, and I truly appreciate your time. And thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Good luck for all of you who are negotiating. It's a good thing. And, I, and I'll just close with it doesn't have to be something which harms relationships or is adversarial. I think a lot of it is that you can do things that are better for yourself in ways that also can help and certainly not hurt your relationship. And I think that sometimes by just imagining that you got a really good outcome for yourself and also recognize that the relationship that you had with somebody else is actually better, uh, just say, you got there, how did you go about things? And I think that sometimes uh, gets you to think about things very, very differently. Wonderful. Well, thanks again for joining us and thank you to listening to ENT in a nutshell. We'll see you next time. 